This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Over the last two decades, the annual Iowa Organic Conference has become an important place for organic farmers to share knowledge, for aspiring organic farmers to get the lay of the land, and for Iowa farmers to connect with decision makers and innovators from around the country and the world. The 21st annual Iowa Organic Conference is coming up on November 26th and 27th at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. The theme is Organic Farming, Healthy Soil, clean water, seeking integrity in every practice. And this hour, we'll preview the conference and meet four of the presenters, including Margaret Scholes of the International Organic Inspectors Association, Dave Campbell, 2022 Organic Farmer of the Year, Kate Solko of Root to Rise Farm in Ames, and Francis Tickey of Radiance Dairy in Fairfield. But first, Kathleen Dellett is here. She is a professor of organic agriculture at Iowa State University and founder and conference chair. Hello, Kathleen. Hello, Charity. How are you doing? I'm good. It's great to have you back. And Kathleen, this is the 21st annual organic conference. How have you seen organic agriculture in Iowa grow over the last two decades? Yes, it's grown leaps and bounds. Um, When I first came, there was less than 50,000 acres. And today, well, at the last census in 2021, there were 169,361 acres of organic production in Iowa. And we're Six in the nation in number of organic farms. Wow. And I mean, this increase in organic acres, does it continue to grow more quickly over time? It tends to increase. Um, there were some, a couple years, it was, it was pretty flat. But um, from the last census in 2019 to the most current one, which was 2021, we've grown 10% in Iowa. The... Organic farmers who come to this conference, I'm always struck by the diversity of the kinds of organic farms there are in Iowa. Just this hour, we're going to talk about organic vegetable farming, organic row crop farming, organic dairy farming. Can you give me an idea of the, the, the really the diversity of operations? Right. That is one fabulous thing about the conference is to meet farmers from all walks of life and all different types of production from small scale to, I think, the largest um, the largest acreage a farmer that's presenting is farming about 1,000 acres organic. So um, it's quite a range. We've, we say there's something for everyone, as you mentioned, from fruits and vegetables to row crops, including small grains like wheat and oats, and all the way to organic livestock. Organic farming, organic production has been growing in Iowa, but uh, organic demand has been growing faster. Give me an idea of of what we see as far as demand for organic products. Yeah, demand is definitely growing, excuse me, and the largest increase was like 12.4% increase in sales during the pandemic year. Um, It's it's continued to grow like 5 to 7% a year. When, let's see, when I first started in 97, it was a $3.6 billion industry. And then last year, it went up to $67.6 billion. So we have the largest organic market in the world, in the U.S., but our production is not as great as um, Europe, for example, where in certain countries in Europe, like um, 
Denmark, 10% of the production is organic. So we're striving for that. That's my goal. And I'll keep, I'll keep working towards it. And that means that the United States has to do a lot of importing of organic products? Correct. Um, it's been my frustration, but I understand reality that buyers want high quality and low prices. So when they can't get those two things from um, U.S. growers, they will import. So the statistics are old on this. I need to do a deeper dive after this interview. But um, what I ha- what I found was in 2011, from 2011 to 2016, uh, imports of organic grains rose from 42 million to 401 million dollars. So that is a frustration for us. I, I want to say also on the other side of it, we have been exporting more too. So more organic products have been exported during that period too. Um, but yeah, that's one thing we're always pushing is let's get more or domestic production of organic grains to so that buyers won't have to go overseas and get get the product at a lower price. Well, it also is a really strong indicator of incredible opportunity for Iowa organic farmers. Exactly. Yeah, we have the best soil in the world. Well, maybe Minnesota beats us, but um, nevertheless, we, we have great soils, which I think, well, that's our theme at the conference, too, is soil quality. We'll be hearing about how great our soils are and that we can even enhance them further through organic practices. And, you know, having great organic soil and really intelligent um, organic farmers that I've learned so much from, and I know other people can, too, um, that you can produce, we've shown through our research, you can produce equal yields to conventional crops. So get the word out. So you you just mentioned the, the theme of this year's conference is organic farming, healthy soils, clean water, seeking integrity in every practice. Uh, Jenny Tucker is the keynote speaker. She's deputy administrator of the National Organic Program. Tell me a little bit about Jenny Tucker. Right. Yeah, we're so excited that she agreed to come from Washington, D.C. and give us the latest news from D.C., which there's been a lot. Um, She's a real fireball. We're so excited to have her. She's started this project called SOE Strengthening Organic Enforcement. And not that I always tell people I've not seen any fraud in organic in the 25 years I've been in Iowa. However, it does exist. And so people want to know that there are enforcement enforcers out there, um, bird dogging these things. Any citizen can report any possibility of fraud anywhere if they think there's, they, they're witnessing it or they hear about it. Um, they can report it to IDOLS and an investigation can take place. And Jenny's really been pushing that to strengthen organic enforcement. And just a couple of weeks ago, they came out with um, the final rule for organic livestock standards. Maybe Francis will talk a little bit about that. Although I know for a fact that he's already complied with all the new uh, regulations in this final rule. But again, there were some folks that were, I would say, pushing the envelope and, you know, having a lot of livestock in a small area. And that's being cracked down on through these new regulations. Um, They're really restricting how many animals you can have per area, certain area. And um, it always was a requirement you had to have. Um, access to outdoors, and they're just pushing that a little harder, and they're going to crack down on that further, it looks like. Uh, 
Well, that's one of the things that really distinguishes um, organic farming from conventional agriculture. There are a lot more rules and restrictions when it comes to organic farming, aren't there? Right. Yes. I, when I talk about organic, I don't show that slide with all the rules as the first thing. I say, you know, organic is truly a system that mimics nature. And you need to think about that first and foremost. And when you accept those concepts, um, these rules just kind of fall into place behind it. So, for example, it's required that you have a crop rotation. Well, that mimics nature because you always see a biodiversity out there. You never just see one crop or you know, monoculture or biculture. There's always at least three crops, three types of plants in a system. So you're just mimicking nature. And then, yes, underneath that are these specific rules. Tell me a little bit about this moment in time, because uh, there have been changes. Uh, you were just talking about the rules for livestock production. There have been changes. There has been increased support for organic production from the Biden administration. And of course, we've got a, another farm bill coming our way pretty soon. Can you characterize this moment that we're experiencing for organic farming? Yes, we, we're extremely excited. As you mentioned, there's the, with the Biden administration, this we've received more support than ever um, for organic production. And that has taken the form of two main programs that we'll be talking about at the conference. One is called TOP, Transitioning to Organic Partnership Program. And that provides funding, funding to every state to help increase technical assistance and actually set up a mentorship program where we'll have mentors and mentees working hand-in-hand hand to help folks that are interested in transitioning. They would be the mentees, um, work with experienced organic farmers, the mentors. And Iowa State's a core partner in this uh, top program, and we're working with MOSA, Midwest Organic Services Association, out of Verroqua, Wisconsin. They'll be there at the conference to talk about the top program and encourage everybody to get involved. So our program will continue as we've been doing for 25 years, offering field days and workshops in this conference, but we'll also be ramping up this mentorship program and then doing um, an online course on transitioning to organic as part of this top program. Super excited about that. And then um, NRCS, USDA, Natural Resources Conservation Service, um, they've also received additional funding for organic transition, and they rolled out a new organic practice standard that will help cost share expenses for folks transitioning to organic. So we've done one training on that. We plan on doing another one. We're really excited to work with NRCS as a partner. They'll also be speaking at the conference, talking about not only the organic management practice standard, but other practice standards that folks can apply for under their EQIP program to assist with uh, transitioning to organic. Example, paying for a certain percentage of cover crop seed that you use in your organic rotations. And looking ahead toward a, a new farm bill, are there specific things that, that you're most concerned about? I'm glad you brought that up because with all the stuff that's been going on, I haven't followed the farm bills closely. However, we are having Nick Rossi from the National Sustainable Ag Coalition come and speak at the conference on the farm bill and what specific um policies and sections will be applicable for to organic 
and sustainable farmers. So he's his topic is influence, influencing ag policy to support sustainable and family farms. So um, we're also having Carolina Mueller from the National Young Farmers Coalition um, on, in that panel, too. So, I mean, I imagine, as in the past, they'll be pushing for more funding for conservation practices and um, transitioning to organic. Kathleen, thank you so much. Thank you, Charity. Kathleen Dellett is professor of organic agriculture at Iowa State University. She's also the founder and chair of the Iowa Organic Conference, which is coming up on November 26th and 27th at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. We'll find out more in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are previewing the 21st Annual Iowa Organic Conference. It's coming up on November 26th and 27th at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. The theme is organic farming, healthy soils, clean water, seeking integrity in every practice. I'll talk with presenters, including Dave Campbell, 2022 Organic Farmer of the Year, Kate Solko of Root to Rise Farm in Ames, and Francis Tickey of Radiance Dairy in Fairfield. With me now is Margaret Scholes, Executive Director of the International Organic Inspectors Association. She'll be part of a session on organic certification, which is a big hurdle for organic farmers to get through. Margaret, welcome. Thanks for having me today. And you'll be talking with farmers about how to prepare for their organic inspection. Can you tell me just a little bit about the process? Because I know it's complicated. Um. Well, all organic farms have to be inspected at least annually to be certified in the United States, and they may have additional unannounced inspections or residue sampling, and that all sounds kind of scary, especially for the transitioning grower who hasn't been inspected every year, like like Francis or some or Dave, uh, people that have already been certified. The I think if I were to boil the process down into a simple nutshell it would be that all you have to do to be organic is to not have used any synthetic pesticides or fertilizers that are prohibited for 36 months before you harvest an organic crop. That's one thing that's true always, uh, whether it's accidental or on purpose. And you have to uh, keep records and you have to have a soil building program. So it's not as complicated as it sounds. There are rules that you have to follow. And I think um, for the beginning farmer, the, the farmer that's thinking about transition, it's so important to go to these conferences and farm tours where you can talk to other farmers who are certified. Um, the USDA Organic Seal is the most recognized seal. And as Kathleen said, it's the biggest market here in the U.S., and we can't even provide, we can't even meet the demand for organic food in this country. We're importing it. So there's a tremendous need for more domestic production. 
And um, I think that the the biggest hurdle for the transitioning farmer is is learning to navigate certification, as you said. It's not as complex as it sounds because you get a lot of technical assistance from the certification agency that you choose to apply to. But that three years of transition, if you're switching off from synthetics, switching off, then that's the time that you need the most technical assistance and you may experience some yield drop and you can't benefit from the economic incentive that you get when you get certified. So that transition period is is a challenge and it's I'm super excited that the government through the USDA programs right now is supporting transition both with finances and technical assistance and farmer mentors and helping to fund conferences and events all over the country right now. Well, you mentioned how difficult the transition is. And and for a lot of people, uh, it's not necessarily that they are transitioning from being successful conventional farmers to organic. I mean, a lot of people, this is their startup. So the first three years of growing also faces those challenges of not being able to get the financial benefit. Can you tell me in a little more detail about how the the USDA is supporting these new farmers or transitioning farmers now? There, there is uh, there's some programs that have been around for quite a while, and one of the most important, um, you ask about the Farm Bill, what's in the Farm Bill, what would we like to see in the Farm Bill? There's a program called Cost Share, and producers who are certified can apply for cost share through their FSA office and get um, up to $750 of their certification costs reimbursed from the government. And for a lot of small producers, that almost covers the cost of certification. And what we're trying to do, a lot of us are advocating to increase that amount so that cost of getting certified is not a barrier. That's been around for a long time. We'd like to see it get bigger. But the new programs are um, some through the NRCS, incentives to producers' direct payments for transitioning acres, and also they are helping to make mentors, farmer mentors available by paying the mentors. They won't pay the farmer who's transitioning, but they'll pay the mentor to assist. And, and you are right. If you're starting farming and starting organic farming at the same time, you need all the help that you can get. Crop insurance also is getting better. Um, because if you lose an organic crop, sometimes you lose a lot more dollar value than if you lose a a non-organic crop, and crop insurance keeps getting better to help the organic producer. Well, and that's uh, over the the 15 years that I've been talking to people about specifically this subject. I mean, we have seen those supports for organic farmers and 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 non—horticultural farmers, I guess, vegetable farmers, those supports— have been growing because uh, originally that just wasn't something that was really considered in the farm bill. Um, before I let you go, Margaret, I would love to to ask you, I mean, we're seeing this increase in demand for organic production. We're seeing a growth in domestic organic production. Can you keep up with with all of the demand for inspection and, and certification? Um. Oh, great question. We are seeing a pretty significant demand for more inspectors, and we have training all over the all over the world. Um, but we do training online and in person, and we are seeing a fairly significant increase in the number of inspectors that are needed. 
so that's what we do is we train organic inspectors. And it, it's important to have inspectors that relate to farmers and have experience farming so that we don't just become bureaucrats. So we want quality inspectors as much as we want more inspectors. Now, as someone who interacts with people involved in organic farming all over the world, uh, I was just talking with Kathleen really about this moment in the United States, but can you characterize what you're seeing in organic worldwide at this moment? It's not a it's not a fringe niche anymore. Um, big stores, chain stores, um, have organic produce. Almost everyone buys some organic produce. People particularly get interested in organic when they have children. You see a, a strong market. Um, I wish we had more organic food in lunchrooms, but I think it's just becoming more mainstream, and most people have organic food. Um, at, uh, there's very few people that simply won't buy it. <laughs> it used to be when I started three, 33 years ago as an inspector that there were a lot of people I inspected who it didn't occur to them to eat organic food, and that has changed completely. So they, they were growing organic food and, and it didn't occur to them to eat it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I, I don't see that anymore. I see it much more accepted, and, and I think that the USDA seal, which represents that baseline um, we, when I started being an inspector, standards were not uniform. Each organization had its own standard. So in, 20, uh, in 2000, we got the uniform USDA standard, and we keep working on that and pressing to make sure it has integrity. But everybody gets certified to the same rules. Margaret, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Margaret Scholes is executive director of the International Organic Inspectors Association. She'll be part of a session at the Iowa Organic Conference on organic certification. Again, the Iowa Organic Conference coming up just very soon on November 26th and 27th at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. We're meeting a number of the presenters today. And next up is Dave Campbell. He is the 2022 Organic Farmer of the Year. He farms at Lily Lake Organic Farm in Maple Park, Illinois. He's also an organic advisor for Rodale Institute, and he'll be part of a panel called Weeding Innovations and Practical Advice to Reduce Weed Populations. Hello, Dave. Good morning, Jody. Thank you so much for being here. And characterize Lily Lake for me. Tell me a little bit about your farm. Okay, our farm, um, we've got a 224-acre farm here. We're located in northern Illinois near DeKalb. We're about 35 miles south of the Wisconsin border. Uh, this farm <clears throat> was homesteaded by my wife's family back in the 1830s, and it was like most farms, uh, livestock and, and crops and so forth. And then in the 60s, things, of course, changed quite a bit here in the, in the Midwest. Uh, we saw the cattle, uh, livestock leave the farm, and uh, emphasis was on raising more crops for the export market. And so in... Uh, Oh, pretty much from the mid-60s until we came in 88, it was a typical corn-soybean farm. We call that monocropping. And then in 88, uh, we came down here from Wisconsin, and uh, we switched cold turkey to organic production at that time. Oh, wow. That must have been quite the transition. Yeah, it was. It was uh, Given that it's a smaller farm, we decided to do the whole farm at once. I don't necessarily recommend that for larger operations. Um, 
you know, a situation where you're transitioning a lot of acres, maybe 500 to 1,000 acres, I would suggest doing that over a period of time. But uh, since it was a smaller farm, we did it that way. I also had two part-time jobs at the time, and so it did work out financially, and uh, it's, it's been a success. Well, you're going to be talking about weeding innovations and and weed populations. I have to imagine that for a lot of beginning organic farmers or or transitioning organic farmers, weed management has to be the biggest fear. Am I right about that? You're absolutely correct about that, Charity. Yes, weeds are the biggest concern. And uh, that's something that uh, there's a lot of ways to address uh, the weed issue, which I'll be talking about with Bull at the conference here on the 27th. But yes, weeds, uh, you can see the weeds, they're very visible, and they do impact your yield negatively. And so that is, uh, it's a very major issue. So let's talk about innovations. Uh, How have you seen organic weed management change in your career? Boy, um, I would say one big thing that has really been an improvement is the um, I, the use of the equipment. I mean, we've had weed uh, weeding the equipment for for many years, of course, but the improvement in the equipment, the way it's manufactured, uh, what it can do, uh, different types of equipment. For instance, you know, row crop cultivators, something that farmers have had ever since they've raised row crops. But there's been an improvement uh, with that, especially the technology with your guidance systems and so forth. We have a tool called a rotary hole, which is used early in the, in the process when the crop is, is just coming out of the ground. Uh, pine weeders are being used. So there are tools, uh, not just the tools themselves, but the technology that goes along with using those tools. And also uh, things like crop rotations. Um, those sorts of things, fertility, looking at more than just the actual weeding tool, but looking at the big picture and seeing just, you know, what does it take other than going out with a cultivator and and cultivating out those weeds? uh, What else can we do to set ourselves up ahead of time so that we don't have uh, or potentially don't have these weed problems to begin with? Well, and so there are two things that I want to ask you about there. One is, does that mean that there are more specialized tools for organic farmers now instead of organic farmers having to use tools that were really developed for a different kind of farming? I would say to some degree, not necessarily a lot of different tools, but maybe uh, just what the tools can do. Uh, And I think Probably the biggest thing is just the understanding of how to use the, use the tool and when to use it. In other words, timing. Uh, you know, do I use this tool uh, so many days after I plant this crop? Uh, you know, sooner, later, and those sorts of things. Just the understanding of, of just not only what the tool does, but how it's going to work in the overall scheme of the crops I'm raising. You also talked about looking at at the big picture, about how all of these different elements interact, and of course, what's going on in the soil as you're building soil fertility. Do you feel like there has been really a watershed moment as far as understanding soil fertility and, and what we are doing when we farm? 
You know, it's something that, as far as a watershed moment, I would say not so much that, but I would say that the knowledge has been there uh, for a long time. Uh, For many years, we just did not get the information uh, through the university system and through extension because, well, for a lot of reasons, but I won't go into that. Uh, You know, so the information was there, but it was just not uh, commonplace. It was just not talked about. And so organic farmers really needed to do some reading and talk to other organic farmers to find out just what really works and what doesn't work. And so little by little, uh, it's just over time, I think more farmers pick up on that knowledge and, uh, and just what works and what really doesn't work. Well, in making those connections, if they if they couldn't get the resources Correct. through traditional, of course, we know that that all kinds of organizations have have really developed over the years to support farmers and and to give them access to this kind of information to connect farmers with each other as well. Um, you know, thinking back to when you first started farming organically, what do you wish you had known in that transition period? I would say uh, probably the thing that impacted me the most, and I think probably most other farmers too, is that you need to learn to cut your losses uh, before the weeds overtake your crop. And, of course, during the first years of organic farming, especially the transitional years and even beyond a little bit, uh, you're going to have more issues with weeds, not that you can't have a weed problem 30, 40 years down the road because of the weather or, or whatever reason. But I think the main thing is to remember is that you're looking at something that, you know, the potential is there. You're going to get more income, but you're going to have more risk involved, too. And so the thing to remember is that when you're you're doing this, if you've got a situation where, let's say, you planted some corn, which is typically done around mid to late May organically, earlier if you're conventional, but organically a little bit later, you get some wet weather like we had in, remember, 2018, 2019 across the whole Midwest. We had a lot of rain. And it, it gets to a point sometimes where the weeds overtake the crop. If it happens, it doesn't happen very much, but it, but it can and does happen on occasion. At that point, you've got to make that decision. If I'm going to live with this crop, it's not going to produce very well. I'm going to have a lot of weeds. I'm setting myself up for more weeds and more problems in the future. So at some point you say, okay, maybe I need to destroy that crop, meaning to till it, till the ground, eradicate the crop uh, mechanically with your tillage tools. And then maybe if you have time, it's not too late, plant a crop of soybeans. Soybeans don't work, possibly buckwheat. Or what really seems to happen most times is that that decision is typically not made until like maybe mid to late summer. Well, it is hard to hard to cut your losses, Dave. I'm, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for talking with me. Dave Campbell is the 2022 sure. Organic Farmer of the Year. He farms at Lily Lake Organic Farm in Maple Park, Illinois, and he's organic advisor for Rodale Institute. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're getting a preview of the Iowa Organic Conference. It's coming up November 26th and 27th at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. And my next guest is part of a panel called Flowers, Food, and Forage, Growing and Marketing Your Specialty Crops. Kate Solko is the owner of Root to Rise, a five-acre vegetable farm north of Ames. The farm has 100 CSA members, and they also sell at the Ames farmers market where they have a double booth hello kate hi thank you so much for being here now root to rise has been in business for five years right um we were founded we're ending our fourth growing season so um yeah the business was founded in the fall and then we really started that next spring okay well tell me a little bit about what you grow what do you focus on um, well, I like to say we grow everything you can grow in Iowa and a few things uh, that people would tell you can't. We grow a lot of staple crops, um, sweet potatoes, uh, potatoes, onions, salads, things like that for our members, as well as some specialty crops like microgreens, fresh baby ginger, um, and some fancy salad blends. Yeah. Nice. And five acres is actually pretty big for a horticultural farm. So you're you're growing a lot of stuff. We are. We are. And, you know, it's not just me. We have a really solid crew um, during the main growing season. We have four full time employees and an intern um, through a program with Iowa State. Um, and you know, we have members that help out on the farm. So there's really a lot of us, but we're, yeah, we're growing a lot of food. Now, when you started the farm, that first growing season, did you have to go through the organic certification process while you were growing and selling? Um, yeah, so the land that I'm growing on, uh, previously hosted another, um, organic farm. So the land had been certified before, but each um, each new grower or new business uh, needs to certify for themselves. So yeah, during that first year, we went through a lot of the um, um, a lot of the paperwork and record keeping and educated ourselves about the standards and that sort of thing. Um, my previous work experience was on organic farms, though, so I definitely had kind of a leg up in in knowing how to navigate that system. Yeah. The land that you're farming, um, you are renting from Alluvial Brewing. Tell me a little bit about that relationship. Yeah, so our farm is, um, we rent about five and a half acres um, uh, in a piece of land that was previously row cropped. Um, It has some very sensitive areas, and so that was taken out of row crop production and put into uh, CRP and restored tall grass prairie. Um, but there is a there is a small parcel of land that is suitable for for horticultural crops, and we rent that. Uh, it's behind alluvial brewing, and you can see it from the patio. It's a nice relationship, and that we get to share some equipment um, and you know some of the facilities, like um, at Prairie Moon Winery, that's on the same property. Um, it's been really nice for our business to to be able to have that partnership. But yeah, we're we are two separate or three separate businesses on that property. 
12 years ago, before you were farming this land, the tiles were broken. And of course, those tiles were in the soil to take the water away. And we know that that a lot of the farm fields, the majority of farm fields in Iowa are tiled to take away those prairie potholes or the wetlands that, that created problems for farmers, especially with traditional row cropping. So those tiles have been broken. You have had this land that has returned uh, at least somewhat to the original water flow. How have you shaped your farm around that? Yeah. Um, well, with the, with the wetlands being so important, we know that we wanted to grow on the higher ground, the, the ground that's drier. Um, so with horticultural crops, we have lots of different field blocks. Instead of growing one type of crop on a, you know, on a very large field, we're able to make smaller fields in more appropriate locations on the landscape so that those really sensitive, important um, areas and wetlands are protected and we're still able to grow profitable crops on, on, the, on the more suitable ground. Can I ask you a question about economics? Sure. So, I mean, this, this is incredibly hard work that, that you're doing, and this is a, a business where it's hard for people to make a living. You've got 100 CSA members, so those are people who are receiving a share of crops from your farm. They are paying up front, so that, that helps you with some of the costs. You're selling at the Ames Farmer's Market. Is this a profitable op- operation? That's an excellent question. Um, you know, the profit margins in small-scale ag are really slim. I, I don't think that any of us, uh, you know, need to mince words about that. That's that's a reality. Um, we've been able to, so far in our business, remain debt-free, um, although I think at this point we're not paying ourselves what we would like to be seeing ourselves make you know making in the long run uh for retirement accounts and health care and things like that those are things that feel pretty out of our reach but we have been able to you know um at least have enough community support and um you know um make enough money the way we're marketing our produce to stay out of debt and for now that's that's our victory um and you know, I I worked on a lot of other farms before I started my farm, and I had a really strong sense of what I wanted the farm to look like and the sort of infrastructure that I felt were pieces that I felt were key. So we spent the first three years investing our profit back in the business um, in order to really set up the business to to be uh, profitable, um, to have to have good systems um, and good infrastructure, you know, good pieces of infrastructure. Um, And we hope now that with the farm set up the way it is uh, in the next, you know, three to five years that we can see getting to a place where we are more stable financially. But I think it's always, that's, that's one of the biggest things that um, I hear farmers saying, I'm, I'm leaving farming because it just wasn't profitable enough for me. Yeah. You are, are part of a panel focusing on growing and marketing specialty crops. And, and you talked about growing pretty much everything you can grow in Iowa. What do you grow that, that we would characterize as a specialty crop? Um, we grow a lot of microgreens. 
Um, so microgreens, because they have a fast turnaround, we're able to um, grow them early in the spring, late in the fall, um, and provide greens uh, through more of the season. And also in the heat of summer, um, salads are hard to grow. So microgreens fill that niche um, in a way that we can grow those, you know, indoors or in a more climate-controlled environment. Um, we grow fresh baby ginger, which is um, a specialty crop here in Iowa. Um, it's a little high maintenance, but it's a really beautiful thing um, to have, you know, during the fall and the winter. And that's another fun collaboration that we have with Alluvial Brewing is that um, they are actually using our ginger and lemongrass uh, to brew a ginger beer. Um, and this will be the third season they're offering it. It's called Root to Rhizome. Um, and that's a that's a pretty fun yeah. special thing that we're doing. So in talking to other organic farmers or potential organic farmers about specialty crops, um, what what from your perspective is the power of those crops? I mean, obviously, you said growing baby ginger is challenging, but I can imagine that it also probably has a a little bit better price point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the value of something with a high novelty like, you know, that's novel like that um, is higher price per pound than than something that, you know, is readily available. If you're the only person in your market that's growing that, that can be really helpful to draw people in at your farmer's market booth or like, you know, CSA members really enjoy that we have a high volume of culinary herbs uh, to round out their diet, things like that. So. Um, you know, those those things can help generate customers and keep customers happy. What are you going to share at your panel that you wish someone had told you five years ago? Mm. Um, I think that I wish that more farms that were running a CSA program um, started out with a few seasons of experience under their belt. Um, I think that even though CSA is a great way to be more secure as a, you know, in your income um, as a small scale vegetable producer, I think it's really important that we um, that we know that we're able to handle um, the that responsibility of you know, someone's grocery dollars for the year before we jump into it. Yeah. To, the the pressure is too high, um, you know, to start a CSA in the first year that I would get a few years of mar- maybe market growing experience where there's not people relying on. Right. On the, on those boxes <laughs> yeah. every week. Yeah. Every week. Yeah. Yeah. Kate Soko, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Kate Soko of Root to Rise Farm in Ames. And our final guest of the day as we preview the 2023 Iowa Organic Conference is Francis Tickey. And Francis Tickey has been an organic farmer for more than 40 years. He has played a very big role in developing organic practices and policies in many ways in Iowa and nationwide. He's the owner of Radiance Dairy in Fairfield, and he'll be part of a breakout session on organic dairy innovations. Francis, hello. 
Hi, Charity. It's wonderful to talk to you. And I mean, we were just talking earlier about uh, organic regulations being updated and changing. That doesn't change anything on your farm because you are already well within compliance and beyond. But for livestock farmers who farm organically, is this a tense moment? I think only for the big cable farms, the big chicken farms. There are some that are certified organic that are huge chicken factories, and these will have to come into compliance with the rule now. But they have a five-year grace period, unfortunately. It was extended out. But um, in the past, some of these big warehouse chicken places, they, they had organic feed, but they had virtually no access to the outdoors. Now the new rule will require that. But as far as other small-scale farmers and livestock farmers, I don't see any real big change. <laughs> well, let's talk about organic dairy farming. Um, just tell me a little bit about your operation. Uh, we milk about 90 cows. Um, we also we have about 660 acres. We also do some organic cropping. Um, and what we also do is we process our milk on the farm. So we produce bottled milk and yogurt and cheese. We market most of it in Fairfield, Iowa, but somewhat in Iowa City, New Pioneer, and, and a little bit in Des Moines in their online statewide food co-op. So, of course, you're you're feeding your cows, but uh, grass is kind of the, the basis of this whole operation, right? That's right. For organic dairy production, grazing is the biggest part of the whole operation, and it makes everything else successful. If you have a good grazing operation, we um we have about sixty pastures. We call them paddocks, and the cows get milked twice a day. And after each milking, they go to a new pasture, so they get fresh grass twice a day. And so they move around the pastures, and then by the time they rotate through the farm, the first pastures, our paddocks, are regrown into a good state of, of growth and makes the grass more nutritious, and it, it's better for the soil because of the crops get deeper rooted. And it also helps increase the diversity if we manage it right and give it time to rest after being grazed. It also sounds like a really labor-intensive process. It can be, but the key thing is, is the design. We, we design this system so that after each milking, we just go down the cow lane with the four-wheeler, open the next gate, the cows go in the pasture, we set the gate behind them, they do all the work, they harvest their own feed, they spread their own manure right where it needs to be. They enjoy their work. And um, because they're in their natural environment, eating their natural diet, they're healthier. And so it, it helps with health issues. We have very few health issues um, with the cows on grass like that. And then when it's time for milking again, we just buzz down with the, the four-wheeler, open the gate, and they follow us home, and they come in for milking. And they know, again, they're going to have a new pasture after milking, so they're pretty... Um, eager to go back into the pasture. Sometimes they'll actually run to get to the fresh grass. <laughs> We've been talking a lot this hour about increased demand for organic, and anybody who's been to a grocery store in the last 20 years has witnessed this increased demand for organic in the dairy section. I think in particular, I mean, Francis, how has that changed the, the field for you? Because there are a lot more players. Well, there are, but we're mostly local, and we have quite a bit of differences between our milk and conventional milk. Not only is it it's organic, of course, but it's also grass-based. Um, it's not homogenized. Um, and we're doing something now called A2. We're breeding for A2 milk, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a certain protein in milk that 
um, is easier to digest. Um, so we have a, a number of features, and we're local. Um, we don't homogenize milk, and we, and we leave all the fat on the milk for the whole milk, and so people enjoy that. So, um, and people come out to visit the farm. They feel like they're their cows from the local community. So we have kind of a, just a local community dairy, and I don't feel any real competition otherwise. Now, there has been some changes. You're right. There have been in recent years some big dairies in, in Texas and in, out in the western part of the country that are huge, and there's been some question about whether they're actually grazing in accord with the rule. As a matter of fact, the Washington Post did an expose on one of them in Colorado a few years ago. So we're seeing, we hope, an increased effort to um, enforce the grazing rule. But the grazing rule means that cows, organic cows, ruminants, have to get at least a third of their diet from grass during the grazing season. Now, 30%. Now, we, we shoot for like 80%. And the, the rule requires it for 120 days minimum, and we shoot for 240 days. So we greatly exceed that grazing requirement. But we find it makes the cows really healthy. However, when cows are getting all grass, they don't produce as much milk. Mm. That's cows that are in, con- in concentration um, systems, and they, and they get a lot of corn and soybeans. Which this this all brings us back around to the keynote speaker, Jenny Tucker, talking about enforcement with organic issues as well. And uh, Francis, unfortunately, we're out of time. But thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. I'm always impressed with how much you know about agriculture, Charity. <laughs> I try. <laughs> Not as much as you. Francis Tickey is the owner of Radiance Dairy in Fairfield. He's been an organic farmer for more than 40 years and has been a big player in developing organic policies over the years as well. He'll be part, along with all of our other guests today, of the Iowa Organic Conference. It is coming up on November 26th and 27th at the University of Iowa Memorial Union. You can find out more by just searching for Iowa Organic Conference. This is Talk of Iowa.